This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the essayist Lance Morrow about his new book, God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. A truly illuminating and timely book, Lance, but not one that plays by the rules of historical narrative and scholarly thesis. Its 24 chapters add to the length of no more than 162 pages, but they are a joy to read because every word counts. Your gift for language allows you to contain a big subject in small space, or, as Shakespeare would have it, to fit a world into a nutshell. You say at the outset that money is America's primordial element, its logic, its mystique, its raison d'etre, beginning and end of its story. I don't question the truth of the observation, Lance, but how do you go about proving it? And where are the purple mountains of your investigation? Well, thank you, Lewis. It, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. Thanks for what you said about the book. It's, it's an odd book. It's, I'm an essayist, and the book really is a sort of experiment in the essay, first of all. It's, um, it certainly doesn't set out to prove a thesis beyond the idea that money is, as, as I said, the primordial element of the country. But what I do is uh, I, I borrowed an idea that Lytton Strachey mentioned in, in his introduction to eminent Victorians uh, back in 1917, I guess it was. And he said that uh, the, he's writing about the 19th century. And he said the, the ocean of material is so vast on that subject that the uh, student of the past, as he puts it, if he's smart, will lower a bucket into the ocean here and there and, and bring up uh, certain specimens, certain whatever, <laughs> sea life and, and, and uh, interesting data. And I have done, followed that, that method and used biographies of, of uh, various uh, figures uh, touching the, the American story and so on. But as I say, it's, a, it's an odd book in, in, its, um, in its construction. It, I started it uh, just as the uh, COVID uh, virus was, was setting in, the pandemic, and there's a sort of vertical, horizontal structure in the book. In other words, I, the, on the vertical, I go back into American history and examine a number of, of American figures, and on the horizontal, I'm following to a degree the progress of the pandemic and the the tremendous economic damage that the pandemic is doing to the country, the leaping up and down of the stock market, the uh, tremendous uncertainty and so on, and the elements of hysteria and reassurance and so on. I talk in the book about uh, what I call the emotions of money and uh, rather than the, the technical aspects of money. And it, it seemed to me that the, the COVID year was a dramatization of the emotions of money and the volatility, the instability, the anxieties of money. Um, it's, the book is really a, 
about the emotional, in part, the emotional life of the country from the beginning as it was tied up and entangled in in the subject of money, the desire for money, the the uh, wanting to get it, the measuring uh, success or failure by uh, the money measurement. If you have a, if you're starting a country the way that America started, what is your unit of measurement? And the the country has pretty generally defaulted to a uh, a standard of money and a measurement by money, and so th- th- that's that's the general design of the thing. I mean, the the uh, Puritans are. Uh, Come with a dream of riches, spiritual and temporal, and and they turn their errand into the wilderness into an errand into the marketplace. Talk, talk a little bit about the Puritan attitude, their partnership with Mammon. Well, they didn't they didn't exactly start that way, but they very quickly got there. Uh, in seventeen o two, Cotton Mather uh, said, "A man," and this is this is sort of the design. That I'm think the moral design of the of the book itself. Cotton Mather said, "A man rose to heaven with two oars: the oar of his spiritual calling and the oar of his material calling. If he pulls on either one oar or the other, he will go in circles and he will never get to the kingdom of heaven." So that idea of, the, of binary. Dynamics is is there from the beginning of the the spiritual and the material. Americans, it seems to me, have always been ex- incredibly self conscious about the subject of their own virtue. They are very self conscious people, and so when they think about money, they've often desired that it should be virtuous in some way, or in any case, they've tried to justify to justify the the money and the power in various ways. So, as you say, the the uh, the Puritan impulse, the the religious motive motivation, in a pretty rapid time, developed into uh, the material motivation, and yet the the religious uh, logic or anxiety remained a powerful force all through the decades and the years uh, and and was present up to the present time was was there in the drama of the money making so it's a, to me it was a very f- interesting interplay in America and I, I, I write a great deal about uh, the slave trade and about uh, race. I, I write about the uh, Brown brothers of Providence, uh, of the family for whom Brown University is named. And the Brown brothers, John and Moses, there are a couple of others, but I, I write about John and Moses. John Brown was the complete opposite of the John Brown of Harper's Ferry, the abolitionist uh, wild man. And his brother Moses uh, John John was a financier active in the slave trade. Moses was the most prominent New England abolitionist, and the, the two brothers were affectionate siblings for 
all their lives, and yet they were bitter opponents on the subject of the slave trade. And uh, you had God and Mammon there in the um, in the relationship between the two and the struggles between the two. John John Brown, amazingly enough, said, you know, talking to Moses, and he said, you know, if if I thought if if it could be proved to me that the slave trade is wrong, then I would give it up immediately. So <laughs> it was amazing that he. He, he believed it, that it was morally okay. And, of course, a great many of the families, of, of the fortunes of, of uh, Newport and Providence and elsewhere in New England were built on the slave trade. And uh, there are all sorts of interesting moral dimensions in that in that fact. So I, I go into that quite a bit. It, you go into that very interestingly because you go into it on the vertical level, the historical level, but you also go into it on the the horizontal, the uh, the, the the pandemic and, and the Americans accusing each other bitterly on the subject of race. But you you say this is the wrong narrative. It that the signature American melodrama of which is race originated in money, and that the economics of sugar, molasses, rice, tobacco, and kidnapped black labor becomes property. It becomes a medium of exchange. Slaves slaves were a medium of exchange. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look at Huckleberry Finn, for example, which is a very interesting moral tale, and uh, which a lot of people seem determined to bad, which is incredible to me. But but Huckleberry Finn and the, and the question of Jim and Jim's what Jim is and what you know his his slavery and so on, and he, he finds out that he's worth eight hundred dollars. And he's just as as on the market as a slave, and he's 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 very pleased by this idea. He says he's a rich man now because he's worth eight hundred dollars. But but the money and the slave trade and race have been so entangled with one another throughout the history of the country, and they still are the subject of race and the subject of money are still still very you know what is equity for example? What is the the the, the debate that's going on now about equality and equity? Well, that that goes, uh, you know, all the way back on the vertical line, through through American history, and so I I talk a, a good deal about that. I, I one of the subjects that has fascinated me is in talking about American binaries, is the schism between. Um, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and the different emphases uh, that they placed on the subject of money uh, versus politics. Uh, Booker Washington, born in slavery in, West, in what became West Virginia, started Tuskegee and, and down in, in Tuskegee, Alabama, down in the, uh, the most totalitarian white ruled after the Civil War Jim Crow setting and yet he made a great success of it and his he in my reading of it he understood the basic American thing just the way Tocqueville did which was that money was the American thing and so if you wanted to uh, raise up his people they would they would they should master money and they should get money and they should start with the basics which is what he taught at 
Tuskegee, including bricklaying and brickmaking and so on, and then build a solid middle class, banks, factories, black-owned businesses of all kinds. And then you'd have this fortress of money that uh, would make command respect in the American scheme of things and make black people comparatively safe and invulnerable uh, to racist attack and so on. And W.E.B. Du Bois, of course, uh, uh, regarded this as Uncle Tom stuff and, and was more along the lines of politics and uh, the, the political approach and the agitation and all of that and his idea of the talented 10th. But I sort of, uh, in thinking about this, uh, would favor Booker Washington in the idea that I, I think he had a a grasp, almost a guerrilla uh, leader's grasp of the essences of, 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 of the American, uh, the way that American America worked, and his emphasis on money struck me as the right one. The, the thing that interests me, I wanted to mention, was that it seems to me that today, in uh, 2021, that what we are seeing is, in a way, a vindication of W.E.B. Du Bois in the sense that Money seems to me, the emphasis seems to me to be less on money and more on politics, the politics of race, the politics of gender, the politics of information and propaganda. The uh, and, and I think much of this has to do with the uh, incredible transformation of information, uh, the democratization of information uh, by the smartphone, by uh, social media, by uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and Instagram and the rest of them. And so uh, it seems to me we're in the midst of a shift now of emphasis away from the centrality of money, even though there are these mega fortunes and the high tech, uh, Jeff Bezos and all that, uh, a shift in the emphasis toward the political and and toward information rather than money as the organizing political information as the organizing principle of the country, and I think it's causing uh, obviously causing tremendous division in the country. But uh, it's interesting to me that. It's possible that this money is losing its centrality. I don't know if you agree with any of this or not, but and that and that we're we're entering a different phase of of uh, of American dy- dynamics. Yes, but but to me that's a bait and switch. In other words, the division in the country in my mind, is the division between the haves and the have-nots. And that's been with us from the beginning. And Jefferson is another interesting character in, in terms of the binary problem. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he says, direct quote, money, not morality, is the principle of commerce and commercial nations. And, of course, his wealth depends on slaves. But it is, as you point out, you say it is, in terms of the political, it is fake news to pretend that the lives of black Americans of the 21st century 
are indistinguishable in their afflictions from the lives of their great, 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 great grandparents. I mean, over the years, uh, America has succeeded in helping African Americans to achieve remarkable levels of prosperity, education, citizenship, and political power. And, 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 and so it seems to me that the, the, the attempt to make the division along race lines instead of along money lines is, is, a, uh, is a switch, is, is, a, is, is, is fake news. Well, I agree with you, but then I don't, because I think the two are, are entangled with one another. I think, I think it would be, I, I, can't, I almost can't think of one without the other in this particular area, because it seems to me that there, the, the history, there, there is so much, um, there's, there's so much in the way of race, um, I, I don't know how you disentangle it. I mean, if you if you look at the uh, the New York Times 1619 project, which is you know has been criticized a great deal for its uh, for its historical being wrong historically speaking, but it's really it seems to me that it's it's a uh, and I agree that it's wrong historically historically, but it it is a um, it's a gesture. It's a it's a psychological document, and it has to do. It's a psychological jo- document that addresses an old wound and an old condition that is uh, goes beyond the subject of money. I think, and it it has has to do with a sort of annihilation, a sort of cancellation that that has has not been made good, and and that. Uh, uh, so I I agree with you, but I don't agree with you. I I, I think that the two are in t- are difficult to disentangle. You say that money is the energy on which the American dream proceeds throughout the course of his history, and talk about the money as it as it shows up in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't provide wealth, it, it but it provides the means. To wealth, right? Uh, are you speaking when you speak of the Constitution? Are you talking about uh, the Beard thesis about the, uh, the 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 Charles and Mary Beard and their thesis about the economic dimensions of the Constitution, or because uh, they were they were, you know, emphasizing saying that it was basically a document uh, for the protection of property and, and so on and so on. But uh, I think you're talking more about the. Uh, setting up a framework in which it is possible to make money uh, to to proceed uh, with with uh, the dynamic of making money. Yeah, the democratic structure, the the structure. Obviously, the uh, the setup was designed to allow the the ongoing uh the ongoing it was money was at the center of the of the concerns but but also the freedom to make money and so on but uh um i am trying to i'm trying to center the subject because it, it i don't I, to, well, well the, the subject is very hard to center i mean that's that's why your approach of the dropping buckets into the <laughs> the vast sea of of material is it works. I mean, it, it's it's very hard to come up with 
with any thesis, but but money is in in American letters and and politics. It's the hero with a thousand faces, but it's but it's also the villain. I mean, <laughs> you get both sides of the story. Money is a very very interesting and and rather mysterious business story, and it. It has, as you say, it has a thousand faces, and that's the reason to drop the bucket and and uh, fetch up a few of them, and and talk about. Uh, I, I mean, I'm in, I'm interested, for example, in the subject of success and failure, American success and failure, and I um, I spend a little time talking about Ulysses Grant, who went from extremes of failure to extremes of success, and then back to an extreme of failure, and then finally, at, at the time of his death, to a, a sort of triumph with uh, the completion of his uh, his wonderful uh, personal memoirs. But the whole story of Ulysses Grant has got some kind of emblematic power uh, as an American story, to me at least, because he goes to. He graduates from West Point. He goes to the Mexican War. Uh, he does well in Mexico. Then he's he stays in the regular army, but he's stationed in the early 1850s. He's stationed in a sort of a godforsaken uh, post in on the Pacific Coast, the Pacific Northwest. And there are episodes of uh, being drunk on duty, and he's given the choice of. Uh, resigning his commission or being court-martialed, so he resigns, goes back to Illinois, and uh, has a ter- all through the 1850s a terrible record of failure. His his farm is called Hard Scrabble. He fails at everything. He's selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis or or Galena, Illinois. Then the Civil War comes and and there's this very American strange slightly unaccountable transformation in which he becomes pretty rapidly a distinguished soldier, one of the most, one of the great captains of of history. Uh, he wins at Fort Donaldson and then uh, takes Shiloh and Vicksburg. And then he's brought, uh, brought east by Lincoln, uh, finally a, a general who will fight, and he becomes the great uh, figure of the of the war, becomes president, and so on, and then toward the end, the end of his life, uh, he's swindled in a Bernie Madoff-type scam that his son got involved in. And in order to recoup the family's fortune and to leave a little money for his wife and children, he uh, sat down, even while suffering from terminal throat cancer, which is a result of about 40 cigars a day, and he sat down and wrote the personal memoirs, which are one of the great military documents and memoirs of of history, and comparable to Caesar and uh, so on. So, and then, and in a deal that was arranged by Mark Twain, a publishing deal, he left. As he died, he left uh, a, a a good supply of money for his for his family. But I I find uh, Ulysses Grant a, a rather moving character in American history, and I thought it was worth looking at his life, ups and downs and so on, because success and failure are such a motif in American life, and uh, success measured 
by money or not measured by money, measured perhaps by something else. But Grant is, to me, is a very interesting figure. And people like, you, you think of the way that Henry Adams thought about Ulysses Grant. Adams from the great Adams family, his grandfather was president, his, uh, his great-grandfather was president, his father was uh, minister to England, and Henry Adams uh, said of Grant, if you wanted to disprove Charles Darwin, all you had to do is trace the uh, arc of the American presidency from George Washington to Ulysses Grant, meaning the devolution of the of the American presidency, and so the, this uh, old aristocratic, supercilious attitude toward this laconic Midwestern character. To me, the, all that drama is is really uh, interesting. Um, in the context of American money. Well, yeah, I mean, but so, I mean, think what Adams would have said. Well, think of what our, what we now call our meritocracy, right? The, the, the mainstream media is complaining about the devolution of the American presidency from Franklin D. Roosevelt to Donald Trump. Yes. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, another of your emblematic figures is is the F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, Jay Gatz talking about success and failures. Tell me, tell me what you what you have to say about Jay Gatz. I have uh, read uh, the Great Gatsby, maybe. 12, 12 times, and I can never make up my mind because, in some ways, I think it's a lousy book, and yet it has a it has a real power. It has an interesting power about it. I could point you to passages, uh, for example, in the in the flashback to Louisville uh, when when he's a, when when uh, Gatsby is a uh, young. Uh, officer about to go off to Europe, and he meets Daisy. Uh, and there's passages, the, the summer nights, and the magnolias, and the and the the dogwood, are, and, and it's it's really uh, so overwritten and and uh, badly done that uh, you despair. And yet, and yet, it is a very powerful book, and I, it's got a mythic quality because he's talking about Jay Gatz, who starts out in the Dakotas, and he absolutely nowhere, nobody. And uh, and then he's taken up by a patron and and uh, changes his name to Gatsby and he's got this mysterious background but and then turns into the character on Long Island who whom we meet uh, at the, in in the beginning in in the book itself and uh, what he's he's got a, it's got a very powerful kind of of. Uh, I hate to use the term too much, but it, you know it's got a sort of mythic uh, uh, quality about about money. The, uh, the Fitzgerald had a almost childish or, or sophomoric uh, attitude toward money, sort of romantic worship of money and the, the glamour of money. And, and uh, but our whole our whole media is obsessed with the glamour of money. I mean, that's it's. Practically all it consists of. I mean, the, the 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 rich man is the great man, and the, you know they're constantly, you know, the heroes of our time. I mean, and, and the 
the advertisements. I mean, I mean. Uh, <laughs> it, well, but again, that that's that's what I'm talking about in this book is is uh, that the the money. If you, it's right at the center from the very beginning. It's right at the center of things. And now, I mean, how do you measure? Uh, how do you measure worth? How do you, and there well, are plenty. Not, yeah, there there are plenty of ways to measure worth, and uh, most of them don't have to do with money. But it serves in a large, diverse, turbulent democracy to, and and it's and it's also, if you're lazy, it's an easy way to, uh, you know, measure me measure things, and and it has some inherent glamour, of course. So. I don't know. It's it's very money. I think that the if you if you think about um, Jeff Bezos and how much money he's got, say, or if you you think about Michael Bloomberg and the I mean here the, in the twenty twenty election he he uh, jumps in he discards what probably amounts to a, a billion dollars uh, in the in the in a very short time I mean once you add up all the bills I'll, I'll bet he spent a billion uh, officially I think it's around 600 million just an incredible ton of money and uh, in the midst of it, there's that and then there's the there are these bailouts of 1.9 trillion, for example, is what they're talking about now, and money becomes a, a sort of hallucinatory thing that really is it's got a quality of unreality, and uh, that that is, uh, I think, new in some ways. In, in that, uh, starting in 2008, when we saw uh, the the uh, breakdown of the, the, the financial uh, collapse, and the, and suddenly money was worth a ton and then it's worth nothing or you know and, and there's this incredible volatility uh and now you see it now you don't and it seems to me that that's that's uh i haven't quite figured out what the meaning of that uh is psychologically but it it's a it's an interesting and sort of and dramatic and surely a disturbing uh element in regard to money, money is not a, a stable thing, and and so much there's so many smoke and mirrors, so much smoke and mirrors involved now. When you know a guy in in New York can click a mouse on his screen, and several billion will move to Hong Kong or or will disappear or something like that. So it's uh, it's it's an interesting. There's an interesting insubstantiality even in the midst of the tremendous substantiality of it. Well, it's, it's, it's it, from my point of view, in American society, it's the Holy Ghost. <laughs> ah, that's a wonderful. That's a that's a wonderful way to put it. That, that that's well, that's exactly right. I wish I'd thought of that. That's exactly right. <laughs> anyway. Listen, Lance, this is a wonderful book. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed reading it. And, and thank you, Lance Morrow, for speaking with us today about your new book, God and Mammon, Chronicles of American Money. Thanks, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49.
Visit LaphamsQuarterly.org slash podcast for more details.